Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We continue our sermon series today on the book of Jonah. We are in week number three, and uh, week one was obedience, week two was repentance, week three, bitterness is going to sneak into the party. And I don't know about you, uh, I've not heard a lot of uh, bitterness talk in church. And so I thought, let's, we're trying to do like a little different angle on Jonah, play it a little differently than we have in the past. And so we're going to kind of look at bitterness as it appears in the book. It's clearly afflicting Jonah, and I would actually argue that it afflicts us as well. Um, And so let me do a quick recap to catch you up. If you're unfamiliar with the story or where it's going, God tells Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh. Jonah refuses, finds himself uh, in a storm of disobedience, a literal storm. Um, He gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a whale, uh, puked up on a beach. It is what it is. And then he's asked to do, uh, he does what he's asked to do. He goes, fine, I'll go and preach. So uh, the Ninevites actually respond to the preaching of Jonah with wild, beautiful repentance that we talked about last week, to the point that they even dress their dogs and sheep in uh, sackcloth. This is what, I made this on AI, and I thought you liked it last week, so we wanted to show it again, because, you know... It took me like 12 seconds to make. I figured we'd get a little more use out of it. So, so they, loved, they were so repentant, they dressed their sheep in sackcloth, and God relents, and God spares the people of Nineveh, and then we pick up the story there. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Scripture says, Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were, she, uh, you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, just kill me. I'm better off dead. And God said, what do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. He went out of the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Furious is a great word. I like that it starts with furious. Jonah was furious. What is happening here? Why is he so angry? Why is he so upset? God is rich in mercy. Jonah gets to experience this rich mercy, and Jonah is furious about it. He's bitter that God was merciful. Jonah is acting like a child. He's sulking, and he builds a little tent to to, to watch the city. He says, I'm just going to go sit over here and watch what happens. He seems to be mad uh, that it wasn't his idea is essentially what's happening. My wife will sometimes uh, say when we are having a discussion about various things, she will sometimes say, it's not a good idea unless it's your idea, huh? (laughs) A lot of you are in that boat, huh? I'm not the only person who's heard that. She means, I have a lot of good ideas, obviously. She's like, you have a lot of good ideas. Um, That's probably what she means by that. Um, No, like most people, I, I tend to overvalue my own ideas. I think my ideas are the best ideas because they're mine. Uh, Israeli professor Dan Ariely actually came up with a term with a colleague of his. It's called the Ikea effect. And um, this is what you won't forget it, the Ikea effect. People, people report a disproportionate love for Ikea products compared to identical pre-assembled products. Okay, so if, if I go buy that little cube shelf that everybody owns from Target and it's pre-assembled and it costs me $39, 
and you go buy the one that you have to make yourself at Ikea for $39, and then later I say, which one, what are they worth? The, the studies show, this is like actual ac- academic work here, the studies show that people will pay 63% more, they, they value the furniture they put together, it's 63% more valuable than pre-assembled furniture made by professionals. That rickety bookshelf that has a little sway to it in your house, you think that's worth more, not because it's better, but because you built it. And anything we have our hands in, we tend to overvalue. This is why ownership is such an important value in getting anyone to own anything, is if you can own a little part of it, you care about it more than if you don't own it at all. And so the IKEA effect was coined on this idea that people will spend more money to go to IKEA and get cheap particle board furniture that they have to put together themselves than to go get the identical furniture from some other place that's already put together. It doesn't make sense until it does. We own what we own and we love what we do. We love the, our ideas. We love the things we make. It's why you like your kids and no one else can stand them. I'm joking. It's, but we all love our kids. My kid can do no wrong. My kid is perfect. It's so great. It's not his fault. It's not her fault. Why? Because they're our kids. I made them. They've got to be good. Ownership in our hands are in creation and that changes the perception of value and wisdom. If you don't identify with the Ikea effect, maybe you identify, um, maybe you're married, maybe you've ever had this conversation um, where you or your spouse, but maybe, maybe you say, honey, where do you want to go eat? And what's the response? You're already laughing. You know where this is going. Oh, I don't care. Anywhere's fine. So encompassing anywhere, you pick a random place, any place at all, to which the response is what? Naturally, oh, no, not that though. Which you say, so you don't care. Well, I, do, I don't care, but I just don't want that. And you proceed to name 30 or 40 other places of which none of them were the place until you land on the right answer, which should have been the first answer, but you didn't quite get there because she didn't care where you're going to eat, right? So that's the same thing. Like it's the ownership thing happening all at once. Sounds like Jonah. He has this great idea. Jonah, you want to preach to the people? Jonah goes, nah, you'll just save them. Jonah, do you want to preach to the people? Nah, now you're just going to save them. Is that not a good idea, Jonah? He goes, well, it's, it might be a good idea. It's your idea. It's not my idea. It's your idea. So I don't really want to do that. And it seems the root of Jonah's whole problem is it wasn't his idea. So he resists and God nudges. And then he's mad that God made him go along with a really good idea. At the end of the day, if your spouse chooses a different restaurant that you would have chosen, but it's delicious, how dumb are you to be mad that it was delicious? That's dumb. So Jonah doesn't have an idea. God has an idea. So Jonah goes along with God's idea, which happens to be this beautiful, miraculous, healing, merciful idea. And Jonah goes, yeah, but I don't like it because it wasn't my idea. That's a lot of pride. I would call that what about me-ism. What about me-ism? And if uh, you want to spell that, you're good luck. Good luck spelling that. You can write it out. This is what's rampant in our culture today. What about me-ism has kind of infected us. Culturally, there's trouble if something good happens to one group and not another. Why did they get it? We didn't get it. I feel this uh, at times. There's resentment and bitterness showing up. I felt this uh, maybe last year or the year before, whenever it was, the government had a plan to forgive school loans. You remember this? I don't know much about the politics of that. I know politically it was unsavory for some. Financially, it was unsavory for some. Mine was personal. I was just feeling a little bitter. I don't think I was alone. Um, I paid mine off. So what was I thinking? What about me? I paid mine off. I worked hard. I paid my, why, you're going to forgive their loans and I paid mine? What about me? Are you going to refund my payments? 
Does that sound right? Anybody else having that mental thought? That's how I thought about it. And then I had to go, wait, why am I going to be mad that people I love might have their stuff forgiven? You know, again, politically, financially, there's some other considerations, but it's not about me. I took care of mine. My deal with somebody's done. It's not about me. But my first inclination was bitterness. So what about me on that one? What about me? In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. What happens there? Cain is sulking and bitter. He kills Abel because he compared their sacrifices and offerings. And in the New Testament, you go to the prodigal son and the older brother's unable to rejoice with the younger brother. Why? What about me? There's a what about me-ism comparison and envy. There's a bitterness that shows up. Maybe you've heard the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. I think that's almost true. I think it's one step from true, actually. We say that in our house. It's not like it's not true. It's just one step from true. Comparison is, is the thief of joy, almost. I think comparison opens the door to two options. Comparison opens the door, and, and you're in a hallway, and there's one door that says bitterness, and there's one door that says joy. And I think you have two choices once you get into comparison. Okay, you have a choice. You know the Joneses? You're trying to keep up with them? You know those people? Thank you. The Joneses got a new boat after returning from their ski trip during which they won the lottery, okay? And now you have two doors you can walk through with the Joneses. You did not get a new boat, go on a ski trip, or win the lottery. So you can stay in step with the Holy Spirit of God, which resides in you and powers your life, and you can say, good for them, what crazy favor. That's joy, that's that door. The other door is you walk into bitterness and you say, what about me? They already got everything. Why do they need to win the lottery? Where's my winnings? Where's my boat? And so then if you're going to walk down that road and you're going to play what about me-ism, what you're going to end up doing is have to list all the reasons they don't deserve what they got that you do. So then you're talking about Mr. Jones and he takes 12 mulligans around in golf. That's cheating. It's not even good at golf. She doesn't even keep her own garden. Those flowers, she, doesn't, she has a gardener. That's not hers. And you come up with weird, dumb reasons why the Joneses don't deserve favor and you do. And it's purely out of bitterness. I was at a wedding yesterday. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Heard that one? It's a statement of bitterness, isn't it? I've never been a bridesmaid, can't say for sure. What I noticed at this wedding yesterday is there's the bride and there's all the bridesmaids and they are beaming. And I was like, this is what it should look like. Because they have a choice. Every bridesmaid has a choice up there. Why isn't that me? Why did she get the man of her dreams? Why is she having the perfect wedding? Why does she get to wear the white dress? Why am I stuck over here? They could all go down that road. And what I'm watching is brides that are so happy for their friend, brides, bridesmaids that are so thrilled that their friend is in this spot. And, but everybody knows they got two choices. You can have bitterness and be the bridesmaid, or you can have joy and be the bridesmaid, but you got to pick a door. And, and comparison is there for everybody. And yet, you don't have to be bitter in comparison. It doesn't have to steal your joy. It can allow you to be joyful for someone else. Bitterness will steal your joy. Bitterness will harden your heart. So can you think of a place where you resent or have resented someone else's good fortune? Can you think of a place in your life where you have or you currently resent someone else's good fortune? Have you ever used the phrase, maybe that's a better way to say it, have you ever used the phrase, must be nice? That phrase has grown in popularity lately, must be nice. Oh, they have a weekly date night? Must be nice. 
Oh, they send their kids. Oh, must be nice. They drive what? Must be nice. They live where? Must be nice. That's Jonah's statement. That's Jonah behavior. Must be nice is a Jonah statement. If you utter must be nice, you got to check yourself because you're walking before you know it. You're walking through that bitterness door pretty quickly. I would say this. I would warn you with this. The Holy Spirit of God is alive in you. If we believe that, I mean, that's a thing that we believe, but, but do we believe that? If we believe that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and works through us is the animating force of our life. One of the things that scripture says is produced by the Holy Spirit is joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, the whole list. Joy is one of them. Not only do you miss out on joy if you begin to harden your heart, but your bitterness is larger evidence that given the choice between walking in step with the Spirit, which will produce joy, or diving into what about meism, which will produce bitterness, that you've chosen the latter. And so the warning for you is less like, are you living the bitter life or the joyful life? Like that's fine up here on the surface, but if you dig under that, what you got to realize is I'm quenching the spirit of God in my life. I'm not living out of the spirit of God anymore. I'm living out of the spirit of self and what it's creating in me is a whole lot of stuff that doesn't lead to life, but leads to death. And so, so the doors are a cute little illustration of what you might walk through in your life, but the deeper issue is, are you living in the power of the Spirit of God that has been given to you, that was brought to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if that's what we're after, if that's the life we think that we want, then we have to use these, these little doors, these sliding doors moments, we have to use these discernment opportunities as ways to really figure out where am I in my life? Am I living out of my strength or God's strength? Am I living out my agenda or God's agenda? Like Jonah, are we trading God's goodness for our bitterness? Jonah had every opportunity. He's he's not about God's joy, though. And the thing about your bitterness is it doesn't hurt the people you're bitter towards. It doesn't hurt the Joneses. They don't even know you're bitter. It doesn't hurt God. He's still doing his thing. It only hurts you. Your bitterness only hurts you. Your willingness to suppress the Holy Spirit in your life and live out of a self-centered worldview only hurts you. Because you miss out on the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, God. You miss out on all the good things that God wants to bring you because you're busy walking down the path of bitterness. And this is where Jonah finds himself. And too often for us in modern life with social media and all the comparison, it's where we find ourselves. Bitterness jacks you up. It steals your joy. And I know we're having a lot of fun, but wait, there's more. James 3. James 3.13. Who, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But, verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth because such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is the first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and a good fruit, impartial, sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. The Bible has just said, if you harbor bitterness and selfish ambition, if you live your life out of the the envy and bitterness of comparison, of what about me-ism, of that's not my idea-ism, you are not simply operating out of some sort of like lesser than day, but I'll get back tomorrow. The Bible says this is earthly, unspiritual, demonic behavior. Counter to the heavenly, spirit-led, godly life you desire. 
It says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition in verse 16, there you find what? Disorder and some bad stuff? There you'll find disorder and every evil practice. So where are you concerned with what your neighbor has, where you envy and compare and stew in bitterness, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Every infidelity, every theft and murder, every lie and betrayal, every evil practice is rooted in the envy and selfish ambition that is part of the world of bitterness. And we, if we are not careful, find ourselves pretty far down that path. Jonah is bitter because of the grace shown to the Ninevites. Jonah is bitter because God preferred God's will to Jonah's will. That's ultimately what's happening. Jonah says, I prefer my will. God, how dare you prefer your will? So much so that he prefers death. Jonah says, I'm better off dead. Which is a good way to say that bitterness will absolutely kill you. Bitterness will kill you. Bitterness will destroy your faith. Your soul cannot survive on bitterness. You can't live on this bitterness. You can't live on the what about me-ism. It's the, actually one of the first dominoes to fall in deconstruction. You've heard of the deconstruction movement where people are taking their faith and brick by brick undoing it, and at the end of the day going, you know what, I don't believe this at all anymore anyway. Deconstruction is rooted in bitterness. It's a common theme. The common theme in that is usually church hurt. People who walk away from the church didn't have a great church experience. That makes sense. The church burned me or hurt me or failed me. That's what people say. People have told me this. I've walked with people through some of these things. These are not easy things or fun things. People don't go into deconstruction because it felt like a fun idea on a Tuesday to be like, you know what I'm going to do is take away the meaning of my life. And that's not how it works. People go through something traumatic. And then the response to that trauma is to walk away from the thing that hurt. I have a friend who I was on staff with at a previous church who is now uh, living in France, full-on atheist, wants to tell anybody who wants to hear about it, none of what I used to do is real. Another one left to work for Apple, says I'm still spiritual, but maybe more spiritual in the technology side than spiritual about the whole Jesus thing. Another leader that I worked with uh, bailed when their marriage failed, and the church failed in response by encouraging them not to get divorced. And more pain resulted, and they got divorced anyway, and so the church failed me, so I don't want to do anything with church anymore. I've talked with people around here about being let down, shamed, isolated, judged, marginalized. These are real things happening to real people. And the result is often, if we're not careful, the result is bitterness. And people tell me, Kyle, I feel like walking away from the church. I say, okay, why? The church failed me. People have come in my office and go, hey, look, the church sucks. I go, Okay. I don't know, in the moment, sometimes I don't go quite there in the moment, but usually my response to, hey, the church sucks, is you are the church. <laughs> Which is tough to hear. But the church isn't an institution or an organization. The church isn't a series of bylaws or a building. The church is the assembled body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Man, I'd be real careful talking bad about the bride of Jesus. Especially because I'm one of the first ones in line messing her up. 
I will tell you, I've told you before, I'm your pastor and I'm first in line of sinners. I got all my own issues. I will fail you if I haven't already failed you. I will let you down. I will miss something that matters to you. I will fail to appear at the thing that meant so much. I will fail you. And that's part of being in the body of Christ. The church is broken because people are broken. It fails because people fail. So do we want to walk away from the church because the church is a problem? We are the church. We are the problem. But if we care about the bride of Christ, if we believe that that Jesus set aside the the church to be the hands and feet that he would leave behind the, the body incarnate to go and do the work of the Father while Jesus returns to heaven, the Holy Spirit infuses us. If we believe that the bride of Christ matters, that that Jesus loves the bride, then we better love the bride. Even when the bride has flaws, starting with my own. And so we have to have the humility to come alongside our own sin life and look inwardly at ourselves and go, I am the problem first and foremost. And yes, this person's rude and this person's terrible and this person's still sinning against me and this person's the worst and those people gave me bad advice and this person, that's fine, fine. But it starts with I'm part of the problem. And if I'm part of the problem, then I'm gonna stick in here and be part of the solution. And I'm the only problem that I'm responsible for, so I can't be worrying about your problems. I got to worry about mine. Humility shows us the truth that we all need grace, that we all fall short. Romans 3 says, No one is righteous. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Ephesians 4 says to get rid of bitterness and replace it with kindness and forgiveness. And you and I walk through the door, and church hurt is something everybody's going to experience. If you haven't already, it's going to keep happening. I had a friend two weeks ago say, this guy I worked really closely with, a worship pastor. Turns out he's been sending inappropriate texts to uh, people for a decade. Just came to light. Not just any people, men, underage boys, a whole thing, blowing people up. I said, how are you doing with it? He goes, I'm devastated. I said, your faith's not in him. He needs your love. He needs your support. He needs your forgiveness. He needs work. He needs help. He needs a whole lot of stuff. But he's not the, he's not the whole of the church. He's not Jesus. He's not your source. So you can be devastated for him and his family. But as for you and your family, you need to continue to chase the ideal. Because it's going to keep happening. We have to replace kindness with bitterness, uh, kindness with, bitterness with kindness and forgiveness. With a spirit-infused living that inspires Christ-like humility in all things. And, and we need to be a people that are humble enough to know that we can't do it in our own flesh. The what about meism leads to me leading me. And when I lead me and I operate out of my flesh instead of out of the spirit, bad things happen. It's actually a cycle that begins. When we start on the comparison journey and it's about what about me, my behavior becomes me-centric and me-centric fleshy behavior doesn't lead to good things at least to the glorification of me, which is by nature the de-glorification of God. So the choice we make early is the choice that determines the rest of our lives as we go about the comparison journey. Are we going to choose joy or bitterness? Are we going to rely on the Spirit of God or on my flesh? Because only in one can we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Spirit-infused living and the Christ-like humility it generates is the antidote to the poisonous bitterness that is slowly, silently killing you and the people around you. Humility is seen in Jesus in Gethsemane. As he sweats blood, 
praying to the Father, his words are, Lord, not my will, but yours. That's the picture of humility we're aiming for. That's what Jonah's missing. Lord, not my will, but yours. That's the opposite of what about meism? That's all about youism or some other more catchy phrase I don't have. What about Godism? What does God want me to do with this information? What does God want me to do with this favor that's shown to my neighbors? What does God want me to do with this change in my life? What does God want me to do with this illness? What is God trying to do in this financial calamity? What is God trying to do with this moral issue? What's God trying to do in my life? What does God want me to do with what he's given me today? Not what do I need? What do, why isn't he listening to me? Why doesn't he do what I want? God, what about my will? What about my happiness? What about my joy? I get it. But that's not what God's after. God has a plan and a will and an agenda that's seen fit to save us. Got us this far. So can we hang on long enough to realize that his will and his agenda and his plan is good enough to see us through, that it's a better plan than anything you and I can come up with? Humility releases the shackles of resentment that are endemic in our society. Humility releases the shackles of how your parents failed you. Humility releases you from how your siblings got more than you. Humility releases you from the reality that your children are wasting their lives. Humility releases you from the idea that your neighbors have more stuff than you. Humility releases you from the bitterness of how your classmates are getting away with cheating and you're getting bees doing it honestly. Humility releases you from worrying that the unrighteous seem to prosper in this world. Humility releases you from the quiet bitterness that God has invited you into an upstream life that isn't always going to be easy. God, why'd you have to make it hard? God, sometimes I wish I could let loose too. God, sometimes I wish I could bend the rules to get some of the wealth or the status or the sex that I crave. God, I wish that I wasn't bound by this. Humility releases you. Verse 18 again, humility releases you to be peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. The word peace there is God-designed wholeness. Not simple peace, a lack of of conflict. It's God-designed wholeness in your life. So when you live in the God-designed power by God's Holy Spirit, you harvest a right-living, profound joy that is unfindable, incapable, anywhere else. Away go anxiety and worry and comparison and resentment and ambition and bitterness. Away go those things because you are so awash in the goodness of God. In its place, you get mercy and good fruit, the kind of good life that you've always craved. You get the peace and the love and the hope. You get all of the fruit of the Spirit because you're no longer living in the flesh. So walking in step with the Spirit, His will, His way, His truth, His life, we get to have a different sort of prayer, which is simply, Lord, make us humble. Open our eyes to your way and your will. Humble us. Find us in the Spirit that we might choose the path of joy at every comparative intersection along the way. Let's pray. Lord, uh, forgive me in the places where my comparison still brings bitterness. Forgive me where my agenda supersedes yours, where I need it to be my idea, not your will. Forgive me in the places that 
I hold too tightly to things that don't matter at all. And in doing so, I miss out on all the things you have to offer. Lord, thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice, his death and resurrection, for the forgiveness that promises that I'm not stuck in my flesh. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit, for the gift that animates our days, that powers our lives, that changes our ability from flesh to something so much greater. God, my prayer for me and by extension for this community is that we would learn to live only in you, rely only on you, that we would see ourselves in light of who you are, we would see the day in light of your plan and agenda, Lord, that we would be your children first and we would find joy at the end of every pathway. God, thank you for your presence in this place, for your presence with our people, for your faithfulness to this church. God, we long to chase you more purely, more joyfully. Give us the conviction to know where we're straying, and Father, give us the strength and the power, give us the courage to walk the way that you've invited us to walk. We lift these things up in your Son's holy and saving name. Amen.